This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David, and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is March 25th. As the world recovers from the economic fallout of COVID-19, Singapore has identified green finance as an area of growth for the country. But what exactly is green finance? In this episode, we hear from two experts in this field who can explain this emerging new area for us. We have Mr. Eugene Wong, Chief Executive of the Sustainable Finance Institute Asia, who is based in Malaysia, as well as Mr. Anders Nordheim, who is Senior Vice President for Asia Sustainable Finance at the Worldwide Fund for Nature Singapore. Welcome both to the show. Thank you very much, Audrey. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much, Audrey. It's a pleasure to be here. So Eugene, maybe you can kick things off for us. What exactly is climate or green finance? I would put it simply that green finance is any form of investing or financing that results in an outcome that is positive for the environment. This positive can be a decrease in carbon emissions, pollution reduction, or protecting biodiversity. Sometimes people say climate finance, and when they say this, they're actually referring to investing or financing activities that help address climate change. This can be done through mitigation, where the actions reduce the climate impact, such as setting up renewable energy plants, or adaptation, where actions are there to reduce the impact of the climate change itself. For example, protecting or enlarging forests and mangroves to act as carbon sinks. Uh, You also hear the term sustainable finance to add to the confusion, which is, of course, part of our institute's name. And sustainable finance generally is a broader definition that takes into account environmental, social, and governance factors. So green investing and financing covers both products and services. It's not just about the products itself. We often think of green financing as things like bonds, shares, and loans. But actually, there are also services relating to the activities that make all this financing happen. So if you look at retail banking, yes, it could be a green financing activity, corporate lending uh, that's focused towards green asset management, and even things that sound a bit more exotic like carbon credit trading. Green finance actually has been used by everyone. It's not that uncommon. It's just that you don't see it that often. And governments to financial institutions to businesses all have used green finance. How different is green finance from your usual kinds of financing schemes? Well, green finance has a specific outcome. And we talked about that just now. It's the positive environmental impact. So as such, The biggest difference is the manner in which the proceeds from that financing can be used. So where exactly is it okay to use the proceeds for? Because it has to be green, right? And what constitutes green? This is one of the biggest challenges for green finance. When a project or an activity is not really that green, but it's financed using green finance or under the guise of green finance, this is called greenwashing and it's a very serious problem that we have to look at. And that's why it's really important to have credible definitions that can be applied. Having a taxonomy, which is a comprehensive classification and definitions, is even better. And that's what the EU has done. There's no single definition for green finance, as I mentioned earlier. But there are quite a number of good credible definitions out there, such as the International Capital Market Association's Green Bond Principles, or the ASEAN version of that issued by the ASEAN Capital Markets Forum, which is called the ASEAN Green Bond Standards. Many countries have their own list of what qualifies as green. The other differentiator is actually the use of an external party to verify the eligibility of the project or activity that's being financed so that it can be classified as green. 
This is quite common because it helps provide assurance to investors and financiers that the financing will be true to label. There are also usually some reporting requirements up to the time the proceeds are fully utilized or the financing is fully drawn down so that financiers know what their money is being used for. So in short, there's some extra work when it comes to green financing compared to your usual types of financing. But this is important because we need to ensure that capital is being deployed in the way the investor or the financier wants it. It's also important to note that this trouble is very much worth it because green financing attracts all the usual providers of capital that come to a normal transaction, plus those who want their money to be used for sustainable projects and activities. I mean, many lenders and investors are starting to build green into the business models. And there are currently about 130 large global banks and insurers who have announced their exit from coal mining or coal-fired power plants. So green finance has been discussed globally for a number of years now. And you know, the amounts invested have also increased, I guess, partly because of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, and also increasing pressure on governments and companies to cut emissions and map out net zero emissions. So, Anders, could you perhaps put that change or greater focus on green finance in perspective for us? I think that's part of the answer to why we're seeing an acceleration of green finance at the moment. But green or sustainable finance has a, a fairly long history, reaching back to you know, the early 1800s. What we've seen recently, and especially with the momentum from the Paris Agreement, is that the private sector is taking charge, sometimes still leveraging public funds like the Green Climate Fund, but more and more private profit-driven investment exists in climate finance. And this is bringing scale to the market. I think it reflects, in a way, the maturity of the market. There is a much better understanding now of energy transition pathways, energy efficiency benefits, and the need to future-proof transport and infrastructure. But I think it also reflects probably the urgency of the task. There's more and more attention from the public, from governments, on the need to move faster than we are at the moment. And, you know, forward-looking financial institutions are now positioning themselves for this growth, for this growth market. How important or, or how large is green finance in the grand scheme of things in the financial world? And are there any forecasts for how large climate finance could become in dollar terms? Yes, there are estimates. Different estimates exist. They are mostly in the trillions of dollars using various methodologies. But I'd maybe look at it from a slightly different perspective. Climate finance right now is primarily tackling certain industries, certain sectors, and certain assets that need to move in order to achieve the Paris Agreement goals and to decarbonize the economy. But more long-term and more fundamentally, there is a need to move our entire economy to a state where emissions are balanced with what nature can absorb. Now, climate finance is essential to achieve this, but to me, we're only seeing the beginning of this market, and especially if we add in nature-based solutions like mangroves. And we naturally start with the high emission sectors, that, that's understandable, and we move to transition sectors and tackle those, but ultimately all investments need to be climate change aligned. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating.
So, I mean, we have already established that green finance directs capital to a very specific goal, whether it be reducing emissions or increasing the resilience of a community to deal with the impacts of climate change. But when it comes to investing with a conscience, there will always be concerns about greenwashing. Uh, Eugene, you mentioned this earlier. So tell us what are the regulators doing you know, to ensure strict standards when it comes to green climate or sustainable financing? The first, of course, is to ensure that the definitions are right. And we talked just now about the need for a taxonomy to help with the definitions. So a taxonomy is actually very important. And the second is disclosure standards. Now, most of the regulators in this region actually have very good disclosure standards. But then again, the issue is the definition of what is green and what, if you go on a broader basis, what is an ESG investment. So the regulators have been gradually over time trying to encourage an improvement in definitions and an improvement in disclosures. This is a very important step. And I think it's absolutely critical if we want to grow this market any further. So I wanted to pick up on that, whether you, Eugene, you could give us examples specific to our region about what kind of disclosure or taxonomic details do need to be hammered out. If you look at what the disclosures are in the region for, let's talk about bonds first. So if you want to be labelled as an ASEAN green bond, you have to follow the disclosure requirements that have been set out by the ASEAN green bond standards. That's very clear disclosure on what the proceeds are being used for and subsequently reporting on how those proceeds have been used. That also means that you have to have a particular way, as I mentioned just now, of how you select and evaluate projects. And following that label gives investors comfort that you've gone through the process. So the labeling is very important, and the ASEAN Green Board standards provides a way to label products that are coming out that give investors confidence. If you talk about the disclosure side, we have six exchanges in ASEAN that are already asking for companies listed on them to actually provide sustainability disclosures to give investors an idea of what is happening in terms of sustainability with those companies. ASEAN is in a situation where we need to give our economies time to transition into a greener destination. They can't do it overnight. So the transition standards and the transition pathways need to be credible and they need to be provided for to allow this transition to take place. Just to build on that, I mean, financial regulators are concerned with both the systemic economic climate risks and also with the individual financial institutions' exposure to climate risk. And this is in part why they have moved rapidly into this area in the last few years. So, for example, we now have the network and greening the financial system, which is a network of central banks and other regulators. Most ASEAN countries are now part of this, and they work collectively to develop a better understanding of methodologies and share experiences. And there's also other networks that, that are looking at this. And this is a narrative that we didn't really see just a few years ago from the central banks, this idea of systemic climate risk. So one of the areas where this is being tackled is, as Eugene mentioned, through taxonomies or attempts to provide a proper classification of what constitutes a sustainable activity in the economy. So if you take a particular activity like producing coffee, beans, what does that production need to look like? in order to be defined as sustainable using various criteria. Now, the EU was a little bit of a first mover in this, and they have, through a multi-stakeholder 
process involving industries and civil society organizations, they've developed a, a fairly comprehensive classification of what constitutes sustainable activities in sectors, in certain subsectors. It doesn't cover the whole of the economy yet, and it is focused primarily on mitigation and adaptation, not so much on other environmental factors or even social issues, which is also essential part of sustainability. But they've started to really work on defining using more robust science-based criteria for what is sustainable. And it's interesting to see that some of the regulators in this region are starting to emulate that. They're looking to the EU and, and others for inspiration. China also is, is an example of a market that is working on these regulatory classifications. And what we're seeing now is a move to try to understand how to do this in practice. So the Singapore community has worked on developing a Singapore taxonomy, which is now out for draft consultation. And they've repurposed a lot of the framework that exists in the EU taxonomy. So you go by industry sector, and for each sector, you identify activities, and then for these activities, you define what is sustainable. Now, some activities will always be sustainable from a climate point of view, like renewable energy, and some activities are only considered sustainable if they reach certain environmental thresholds or environmental standards. And then some are, are never part of the taxonomy because they simply cannot be sustainable or they're activities that don't fit into how the economy needs to look like in the future. From our point of view, we support taxonomies if they're done properly and if they're scientifically robust. Uh, because they can bring clarity to the market and clarity to investors on what exactly is sustainable and what is not. And it can contribute to removing a lot of the greenwashing that does exist. Another thing we advocate for is alignment or at least harmonization, because if each ASEAN market develops a different taxonomy, has a different framework, it becomes challenging for financial institutions to report back on that. You know, many financial institutions work cross-border. So if you have to report a different classification system in Singapore and in Malaysia and in the EU, then that creates an additional burden on the financial institution. And it's also not helpful for communicating what is and what is not sustainable to the market. But it's certainly an interesting development to watch. And we're very happy to see this attempt to bring clarity to the market. So Eugene, what tools are there on the green finance front? For example, how can the man on the street put their money where their mouth is for green financing or green investing? To promote green financing, you need tools for both issuers and borrowers, as well as the investors, to provide them the access that they really need. So there's, for the issues, there's quite a bit of guidance out there that can help the issuers of green bonds by providing clarity to them on what criteria they need to meet when issuing green bonds. I mentioned the IGMA green bond principles just now and the ASEAN green bond standards. Uh, these are examples of guidances that can make it easier for issuers to come to market. And for borrowers, there's the green loan principles. And these standards are also important because they help investors reduce the need to do extended due diligence on whether the products are true to label since the standard itself provides that assurance. So, I mean, and this raised a really good point just now about, you know, if there are too many standards, people going their own way, how do we know that this is 
the right thing or the best thing to follow. So it's actually useful to have standards that are accepted by many people because that forms the backbone of the credibility and the assurance for labeling. And then to your question, what tools does the man in the street have? I mentioned disclosure requirements just now. It's one of the most valuable tools. Uh, Good, clear disclosure as required by regulators really help investors make informed decisions about what they're investing in. In a survey conducted by Mars last year, I remember, it was found that close to 40% of assets managed in Singapore incorporate ESG factors. And many of the investment options in Singapore feature wider ESG themes, but I'm also starting to see green products coming out. For example, recently I saw a fund that invest solely in companies contributing to or benefiting from decarbonization. And I also saw that you know, one of the banks in Singapore has a sustainable time deposit product, which is quite innovative. So you can be a retail investor, you can go to any one of these banks and actually have access to uh, green investment products. And if you go to the websites of the major Singapore banks, you see options for sustainable investing. So the tools are there because the intermediaries are there. What is important is that the disclosure coming out from all these investment products are actually very clear because investors then know what they're actually investing in. And I do want to actually point out to one thing, uh, which is the concern that sustainable investments provide lower returns. And that's really not an accurate statement. In fact, actually, it's been shown that the pandemic and all that sustainable investments have actually provided pretty good returns. And in fact, it could be better than some of the existing non-sustainability aligned investments. And partially because, Anders did mention, there's also the risk of things like impairment and stranding as a result of climate change impacting a company's business. And one of the CEOs of the largest investment funds in Southeast Asia recently said, you know, ESG is a vaccine for any crisis and they'd be starting to adopt ESG uh, criteria into the investments that they make. I think retail investors need to start demanding for more green products and sustainable products because really it's a demand and supply thing. So the more demand there is, the more supply will come out. And accompanying that is the transparency we want as well. Not something that's very difficult to understand, but something that's very clear. And again, I think, you know, when we come up with the right standards, that will come through. So thank you both for joining us today. It was a very enlightening discussion. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's great meeting you, Anders. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Audrey and and David and Eugene for the interesting discussion. It was uh, really great. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.